Good morning. My tie has created a number of compliments this morning. I appreciate all of that. The Grinch is on it, in case you can't see, that's the real me, the spirit of Christmas. Married to Mrs. Santa Claus, uh, thereby arises the difficulty in our family a lot of times. Uh, it's just a joy for me to be here with you this morning to, to share a few thoughts on the subject that's on the board. Baptism and the marks of maturity, it is not a lesson primarily about baptism. It, it has to do with who can be baptized and when, and I'm not going to come up with an age. You have to be 12, you have to be 14, you have to be 20, or things like that. I really believe that we miss the, the point a lot of times about when someone can be baptized. In Matthew, the third chapter, I want to read a few of these verses with you. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus comes to John to be baptized of him, of course, in the river Jordan. And a number of things are said. Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. Uh, he's baptized. He's about 30 years of age. And I... I don't think 30 years of age is necessarily the appropriate time. I would think a little bit earlier, a little bit later, but you know, there is not an age bracket where this is necessarily done. I've known some people, 14, 15, 16, who were old enough to know what they were doing. I've known people 30 and 35 and 40 who were not old enough to know what they were doing. So how do you determine Jesus did it, and I'll make this point, and it'll come up again a little bit later, to fulfill all righteousness. In the book of Luke, the 7th or 9th chapter, I don't remember exactly which, the Pharisees are condemned because they did not obey the counsel of God, refusing the baptism of John. Jesus did this to keep on doing what was right. He had never made a mistake. All of us make our mistakes. We sin in this life, and we need baptism to be forgiven of these things. Jesus did not. He did it to keep on doing what was right, not like the Pharisees who just rejected outright the counsel of God. Jesus didn't do it like most of us do. Accepting the responsibility for our actions. I don't know when this changed. I tend to think probably incorrectly. This is because more people now are raised in the city than are raised in the country. I grew up in the country. Get up in the morning, early in the morning, cows had to be milked. Pigs had to be fed, chickens had to be fed and watered. And this was my responsibility and my brothers. We kind of worked together doing things like this. It had to happen again in the afternoon before dark. This was my job. Seven days a week, 365 or sometimes 66 days in the year. There's a sense of responsibility. It's not, I'm too sleepy this morning, I can't. 
Now, we moved to the city sometime in our history. And there's nothing to be done. I can sleep till noon on a Saturday. We couldn't do that. This sense of responsibility tends to drive us. And I think it should. I never got a whipping that was my fault. It was always my brother's fault. We had began wrestling. You understand how wrestling goes? And he would always lose his temper. He, you understand, not me. Sometimes it was my sister's fault, the older of the two girls. Susan never caused a problem. Sarah always did. The little demon dancing in her head. I'd be sitting in the living room reading a book, minded my own business, and she would come through the room, mother's in the bedroom, and Sarah would say, ow, that hurt, don't do that. I didn't do anything. But I had to after that because she asked for it. It was her fault. It's always somebody else's fault. Sometime in our life, we have to come to understand that I am responsible for my actions. You see this, by the way, in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, the third chapter. Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden. God comes down to visit with them, and he calls out to Adam, where, where are you? And he doesn't answer, and he calls out, and he calls out. Some of this is my interpretation of what's going on there. Where are you? I, I'm over here, Lord, and I was naked, and I didn't want you to see me. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat the fruit that I commanded you not to eat? And Adam said, she did it, Lord. She gave it to me and I ate it. It's her fault. Eve looks at God and says, this serpent that you created in the garden, he convinced me to do this and I, it's his fault. <laughs> I kind of like Paradise Lost. It takes it one step further. Satan looked at God and said, if you told me in the beginning how powerful you were, I never would have rebelled. You see, it's always somebody else's fault. I don't care if you're the devil. It's somebody else's fault. And you see this, by the way, in a number of other passages in the Bible. And it comes out the same way in 1 Samuel, the 15th chapter. Saul, the king, has been commanded to slaughter the Amalekites and everybody that's there, all, all the animals and everything like that. And Samuel comes up to Saul, and Samuel is the prophet, of course, and Saul is the king. And Saul looks at Samuel and says, I did what God told me to do. And I love Samuel's response. Then what means the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? If you killed all of them like I told you to, this wouldn't be happening. And Saul's response is, the people save some of these animals to slaughter as a sacrifice to you, O God. That's not what God asked. Saul to do and the army to do, and they violated the law of God, the will of God as God had expressed it, but it's somebody else's fault. And that's the way it always is. Do you get the idea when you read through the scripture that excuses really don't excuse it's just something we say to God when we don't really want to tell Him the truth. Did you eat the fruit? 
Yes. But that's not what we want to say. We want to lay it off on somebody else. Now, I think somewhere through the years we come to understand I can be tempted to lie, to steal, to lust, to covet, to do a number of other things, but it's not really a sin. The temptation is not the sin. The sin comes when I make a decision to perform the task that I've been thinking about. I did it. I did it. The decision to do wrong or to do right is always mine. And I need to understand that. I, I love these thoughts expressed in the book of Romans. Uh, a couple of places. In Romans chapter 1. Verse 20, before we get to this long list of, of sins that are included here that begin to us in about verse 22, I guess. Verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they may be without excuse. When I look at the universe around us, I see the power and the divinity of God. The power is His ability to create these things. The divinity to me has always meant kind of the sense of, of order that God has created everything in. I, I have a, a place in life, things to do, things to accomplish. This is my job. And when I look at the universe, I see the everlasting power and the orderliness of God. And this doesn't impress me so that I can do what I want to do so that they may be without excuse. When you read this list of sins that goes through verse 22 through the end of the chapter, you can't read those things without an understanding. God's saying, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. It always has been. It always will be because God said it's wrong. And when I do these things, I'm the one that's sinned. It makes no difference what somebody else encouraged me to do. It's my choice. And I need to make the choice to follow God that I can be without excuse. Uh, let me read with you chapter 3, verse 19. Still in the same context. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed. And all the world may be accountable to God. That every mouth may be stopped. You'll see that expression, by the way, back in the Old Testament in the, in the book of Proverbs. That every mouth may be stopped. All he's saying there is, well, shut my mouth. I will no longer make excuses to my God for what I've done in this life. I won't say, Larry made me do it, or Sarah made me do it, or Dad should never have asked this of me in the first place. I did it. God I had a man explain to us one time how to write an apology letter. He said, when you've done something wrong and you apologize for it, say, I'm sorry. Don't say, I'm sorry, but. Because when you add the but, what you're doing is trying to take away the blame that's ours by making an excuse. 
I'm sorry, but he made me do that. But circumstances prevail. But there is no but. That every mouth may be stopped. Did you eat the fruit that I told you not to eat? Say yes or say no. Don't say, she made me do it. He made me do it. And here's one of the problems we have in life with being baptized is that we're too immature to know what we're doing. I want to make an excuse. Lord, yes, I broke your law. But it's not really my fault. It is really my fault if I made the decision to do it. Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. I was baptized to have my sins forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. Wayne, the talk uh, cost of a long-term commitment. And I think this is very important when we're considering being baptized. Um, where do you want to go to school? Assuming you want to go to college or something like that. I, I mentioned to you, I think, last time I preached that I had a, a friend who dropped out of college to start a junkyard. He retired 45 years of age, I guess, as a multimillionaire. I don't think college is necessarily the thing for everybody. And I've told you before, trade schools, that's what they used to be called. Junior colleges that teach you a profession is a good avenue for most people to follow. If my air conditioning breaks, I don't want a doctor. I want somebody that can fix it and fix it quickly. I don't care blue collar, white collar, no collar. What you gonna do with your life? You need to start thinking about that. When you're, I don't know if when you're five or six years old, by the time you're in high school, you should have some concept of this. Now, I'm not talking against education. I've had an education. I don't know that it prepared me for much. But you need to th start thinking about what I want to do with my life. What about marriage? Who are you going to marry? I had somebody tell me seriously in a teenage Bible class one time, the first one that asked me. And I think there's a problem a lot of us get into this long-term commitment. I like this one. No, I like that one better. I like this one better. Before you get married, you need to make up your mind. This is the one I want to spend my life with. And anybody you pick is going to be a difficult choice. Do you realize that in societies where the parents choose the spouse, they're happier than we are? Because we'll pick the right one the fourth or fifth time down the line. I went to high school with a guy that married the same girl three times. Couldn't live with her, couldn't live without her. Make up your mind before you get married. What about a house payment? One of these days you're going to want a place to live, and I remember the time when I signed the deed, uh, the, the mortgage to a house. It was $18,000. You know that's not even a good down payment on one now? 
and I felt like the weight of the world was falling on me. I don't know, was, I think for 20 years, and it was 100, 200 a month, something like that. You can't do that today. $200,000? It's a scary subject. You need to think about that before you sign the papers. Can I make these payments for the next 30 years? It's a serious consideration, or it ought to be. And I think here's one of the reasons a lot of people drop out of the church. We'll get emotional about a sermon. We'll decide to be baptized. And I'm not saying that's the wrong thing to do. I'm saying you need to think about it before it happens. Can you live this for the rest of your life? A 12-year-old cannot sign a contract. I think in most cases you have to be 18 or sometimes 21. But I know 21 or 31-year-olds who should not sign a contract because they've given it no thought. They don't understand the concept of paying something back. We need to think about this before we get into it. Here's Paul writing the book of 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter, verse 8. I fought a good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, because of this, I have a crown of righteousness laid up for myself. He's not saying I'm going to earn my way into heaven. He's saying I've done what I contracted to do to God. Baptism enters you into salvation. It makes you a member of the church of the Lord. But it by itself doesn't guarantee anything. There is a commitment that comes with it. I want to live for God, and it can be difficult and, all, and easy all at the same time. It's difficult in the sense that there are so many things we have to give up. But once you acclimate yourself to the sacrifice of those things, it's an easy way of life. I'm going to do what God says. How easy is that? Once I determine what God wants me to do with my life, I'm going to do that. I fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the course. Because of this, the crown of righteousness is laid up for me. Uh, Jesus said it this way in the book of Luke, the 14th or 15th chapter. Luke 14, beginning in verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life, he cannot be, be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which of you, when he wants to build a tower, doesn't sit down first and calculate the cost? And he goes on down in that passage with other concepts in, in the same line. And he's not saying you have to hate the world. You have to hate everybody out here. I mean, he's going to command me to love my wife, to love my mother and father, to honor them, to love my children, to love my brother and sister. What he's saying is, if you love any of these people more than you do me, Jesus has to be number one in our life, and we need to understand that. I cannot bend his will because one of my kids makes a mistake. God's way is right, and a part of this long-term commitment is that I have to be willing to say, we're going to do what God says. I will serve him all the days of my life. 
Revelation 2, verse 10. Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life, he says to the church. Be faithful to death. If it causes your death, you're going to be faithful to God no matter what. And here's the long-term commitment. I cannot say at 50, I'm going to retire, or at 60, I'm going to retire, or at 70, or 80, or 100, I'm going to retire. There's no retirement for the Christian. It's a way of life that we enjoy living. I'm not here this morning because I have to be here. It's an obligation that God places on me to worship with the saints. I'm here because I want to be here. I, I enjoy you people. I would say I love you, but that carries so many different connotations. I'll just hesitate there. I enjoy being around you. C.S. Lewis talked about this. I think it was in his book, Surprised by Joy, where he talks about the fact that he had been raised as a Christian, had left the faith, had become an atheist, and now he's thinking about coming back to the church for a lot of different reasons. But one of those reasons is he said, I looked around, and here are the people that I enjoy. And they're not the atheists in the world. He said, I disagreed with the atheists on just about everything they taught and believed. And I admired the Christians for what they taught and believed. And these are the people I want to be with. Isn't that amazing revelation? I enjoy being with you. We're not perfect. But we share a common faith. Dealing with our imperfections. And we have them. Abraham Lincoln said this, I like to see a man proud of the place in which he lives. I like to see a man live so that his place can be proud of him. You know, my imperfections keep me from being proud of the place in which I live. Oh, I am. I, I want you to be proud that He's a member here of our church, of our community, of our state, of our nation. But we have our problems. In the book of Luke, the 22nd chapter, verse 60 through 62, it talks a little bit about Peter. And it says that something like, okay, the rooster crowed and Peter remembered the words of the Lord. Where the Lord said to him, Peter, before the rooster crows three times this day, you're going to deny me thrice. And Jesus <coughs> turned and looked at him. And I cannot imagine this gaze of Jesus at Peter. He's just lied. I don't know him. And he turns and looks, and Jesus is looking at him, and he went out and wept bitterly. Have you ever done that? Gone out and wept bitterly because of the imperfections of your life? I don't think the Lord put that in there to tell us about Peter. I think he put that in there to tell me about me. I need to come to grips with the fact that I'm not perfect. Nobody ever was except the Son of God. We have our problems, our imperfections. Paul, Romans the 7th chapter, verse 18, he kind of starts this idea. 
And it's going to go for the next several verses. And for the sake of time, I won't read them for you. But what he says basically is, I mean to do right, but I find myself doing wrong. I don't mean to do wrong, but I find myself doing it anyway. And I've had listened to scholars talk about that. It's not talking about Paul. It is talking about Paul. And I don't care what side of the argument you come down on. I think most of us realize our imperfections. I don't need the Bible to tell me this is a sin that I've done wrong. All fall short of the glory of God. We know that. I disappoint myself, I disappoint others. How can I not disappoint God? Paul went through these same struggles that you and I go through. It's Simon the Sorcerer in the book of Acts, the 8th chapter, verse 22. Simon, you're a Christian. You've been baptized for the remission of your sins, and now you've, you've sinned. You're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. You need to ask God to forgive you. Well, Simon is as much a Christian as any of us is. But he's made a mistake. And it's a serious mistake. And he needs to ask forgiveness of God for what he's done. And he can. Peter says to him, you can do this. And Simon looks at Peter and says, would you pray for me? You please pray for me. And all of these are in there. These people are Christians and they're imperfect. Don't you understand? It's everybody who's ever lived in the world. I'm going to make mistakes. You can't look at me or Mike or Trent. You can't look at Dan or Francho or Robert, the leaders in your church. You've got to look at the Savior. He's the only one who will lead you into heaven. I'm going to do what I can to help. And if you can't deal with your own imperfections, it's a serious lesson. And I don't think we can be baptized until we can do this. Now, I will tell you that I don't think we're ever going to be totally pleased with the way we live. I think life is a perfecting concept. And that by the time I'm 80 or 90 or 100, I'm still going to have some lessons to learn. Well, dealing with the imperfections of others, and I'll just do this kind of quickly. Um, our job is to encourage others for the right, and their job is to encourage us for the right. And sometimes they don't. I'm going to make mistakes, and so are you, all of you. With the things we say, with the things we do. I don't want anybody to say of me, I won't have anything to do with that church because that's the kind of guy that goes there. And I've heard some people say things like that. And it ought not to be said about any of us that I won't have anything to do with the church because of Jack. We're just going to do what we can to encourage others. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. He heals all my imperfections. Nobody else can do that. If you want to be baptized, did you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And you're mature enough to understand that you have responsibilities. Not to the church, but to life in general. 
and we can take these responsibilities on ourselves without making excuses of why we fail at them. And I can learn to live with me. Not to be thrilled with my life, but to be thrilled that God can forgive me of my sins. And that I'm going to walk and live among imperfect people. This is life. And it's who we are. And we're here together to worship and serve the God of heaven. And we do this for a lifetime. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And if you're here this morning and in any way you're subject to the invitation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you'd be baptized for the remission of your sins, or if you're a Christian and you've strayed from the faith, and you need us to pray for you today, would you let us know how we may help? We come as we stand and sing.